All right, good morning, everyone, and uh, happy Father's Day again to all the dads. Um, as we always say, even with Mother's Day, we understand, though, like, it's not always celebratory for various reasons. So we do want to acknowledge that in the larger body of Christ in the church our size, you know, for whatever reason, days like this could also be days for sorrow or for, you know, more sadness. So we want to be mindful and understand that, you know, Christ covers and shows grace to every situation. And so that's something that we did want to note on days like this. But if you're visiting, uh, my name's Sam, I'm part of the pastoral staff. I want to welcome you. Obviously, uh, thanks for joining us in the cafeteria for today and next Sunday. Look forward to hopefully uh, having you join us back in our normal worship area in the theater. Uh, and can't push the book clubs enough. Like, the more I think about it, that is probably one of the best arenas to just meet and fellowship with other people in the church because you have a clear thing that you are gathering around. You don't have to force conversation, but there's a topic that's already given to you. It's a smaller setting. So for introverts, extroverts alike, it's a great opportunity to meet people. And so if you are even like an inkling interested, I highly encourage you to sign up. And the, the dream would be that they're all filled. That'd be awesome. And so that's something that I highly encourage. But if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we'll go straight into knowing that we're going through a sermon series of the book of James. And uh, hopefully, if you've been listening and joining us week after week, it's very clear now that every week we go through it, we mention James. It's unique in that it is extremely practical. Uh, again, I always talk about I would have loved to attend Pastor James's church. Uh, it's very clear that he's primarily not a theologian or an academic, but he's a pastor. And this reflects in the way that he wants Christianity not to be conceptual, but he wants it to be real. He wants it to show up in your life. He says, man, if you're really a Christian, it's not just something that should come out of your mouth, but your hands, your feet, your behaviors, your, your beliefs, your thoughts, all of it should reflect what it means to follow Jesus. And in our text today, um, James is going to address and hit on what I think is the most practical thing that all of us do and all of us relate to. In fact, we probably did this this morning, which is the idea and the normal common practice of making plans, making plans. And so with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, your programs, let's turn to our text for today in James chapter 4. We're going to read from James chapter 4 from verse 13 to 17. And here at our church, every time we read and open God's word, we believe that God is living and active and speaking. So can we all rise together as an act of worship as we listen and hear from God and his word today? James chapter 4, verse 13. It's the reading of God's word. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Amen. Let me pray for us briefly. Father, we thank you for your living and active word. May it search our hearts, speak to us powerfully and mightily and clearly today. And as a result, may we be convicted and transformed to follow you more and more in our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, one of the earliest and most formative questions that I think all of us are asked at an early age, uh, probably when we're in like elementary school, is this very fun icebreaker question of, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? I don't know if you remember, I remember in first grade, that was one of the first activities we did as a class. The teacher was like, hey kids, children, here's a fun thing we're going to do. What do you want to be when you grow up? Dream big. And that's kind of like, you know, the American dream summed up at an early childhood, which is this idea of we're in a land of opportunity, make big dreams, make big goals. Not everyone in the world gets to have that kind of privilege, but we do. So I have such a vivid memory of that and kids saying left and right, I want to be an astronaut, 
you know, I want to be a police officer, I want to be a firefighter. You know, to my parents, um, maybe to their sadness, I said, I want to be a pastor, right? <laughs> Little did I know, and God's like, all right, he remembered, right? But long story short, the reason I qualified and said that's a formative question is because it kind of subtly teaches you at an early age this idea that setting goals, making plans, pursuing those plans, it's a good practice, right? And from that early age, most of life is developing this muscle of making plans, isn't it? Think about it. From that edu- educational career goes on, you start to make plans in the near term of, hey, what classes should I take? And not only that, your plans and the kinds of plans you need to make, it kind of draws out to now, hey, where do I want to go to college? Where do I want to plan to apply to? Do I plan to get married? If so, to whom? And when should I get married? Do I want to start a family? If so, when do I want to start a family? Do I make plans for that? Do I make plans for how many kids I would like to have or how much money I want to be making and at what age? Or what, what kind of job do I plan to have? And the list goes on. There's micro plans we make for today and this week. There's macro plans we make, one, five, ten years. But all of it is at the same root that we plan ahead. We look towards the future. And in our text today, James, he's addressing this issue of making plans. And at first glance, it seems like he's not for it. Seems like he's against it, right? In verse 13, he says, come now. And in context, he seems to be calling out the businessmen of that day who are making business plans, right? He says, hey, you and you, come over here. You guys are making all these plans to go to such a city and conduct business and make profit. So it seems like he's not for that. But actually, it's not hard to see that that can't be the case because in verse 15, the alternative he gives, he says, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. So in both cases, planning is happening. It's not like he's saying in one case there's planning and in one case there isn't. So for all the Myers-Briggs peas in here like me, this is not an excuse to be lazy or say, see, Pastor Sam said we don't have to make plans. Actually, the rest of Scripture affirms that planning, making plans, it is wise. It is a good thing to do. It is good to make plans. So what is James speaking against? Last week we saw, if you were here, James, he spoke against worldliness and pride. He said, Christians should not live in a worldly manner. And the definition I gave to get us all on the same page of what worldliness is, is that it's bare bones, simple definition. Worldliness is living in a way that excludes God. Living in a way that excludes God. And James continues that thought in this text by speaking against not planning in general as a discipline, but what I'm going to call for the purpose of this sermon, worldly planning which I would say is to make plans without consideration of God. James is rebuking the worldly, prideful, self-sufficient, self-confident manner in which these people were making plans in their lives. And let's make it clear. James does not see this as a small issue. He doesn't see this as like slap on the wrist. Hey, stop that. He straight up calls it, you are being arrogant, you are being boastful, and it is evil. To go about your life and live without thinking about God and making your plans without considering him, it's a big deal, James says. Now, if you're like, you're probably thinking, well, that's kind of harsh. So you're telling me, somebody asked me, hey, what are your plans for this summer? He said, I plan to go to Yosemite, but I don't say, Lord willing, I'm evil now. Or like, hey, what are you going to do this week? Well, I'm planning to just hang out with some friends. Hey, you're evil. So what's really going on here? And thankfully, James, he fleshes it out. He gives an answer to that question of why is it so sinful and why is it so problematic to have worldly planning be existing in the life of the Christian? And so to answer it, we'll look at it three ways. First, we'll look at the problem of worldly planning, okay? 
Second, we'll see not only is it problematic, but the sin of worldly planning, why it's sinful. And third, we'll look at what's the alternative then? How do we as Christians or those who call ourselves Christians approach planning if not in this manner? Number one, what is the problem? Quick mental exercise. What do a six-year-old, a group of three very young kids, and a young newly engaged woman all have in common? Okay? Three different situations, three different scenarios. What do they all have in common? When the world sees them, what they would say that all of them have in common is this. A bright future. Make sense? A bright future. All of them are at a position and a point in life where the world is their oyster. There's so much plans to make. I mean, six-year-old boy, I mean, some of our kids in education, they're turning six now. And when we see them, we think your life is ahead of you. Dream big. Most of us here, we're kind of past that point. But when we look at them, we think potential. We think you should make plans. You should go hard for life. We think of three good friends. It's not just individual life ahead of you, but there's a communal life you could plan together. I know for me, when I had close friends, we're like, hey, let's grow up together. Let's raise our kids together. Let's make plans together. Let's live next to each other. And we plan all these things in the context of community and friendship. And a young woman who just got engaged, wow, went to a wedding recently, is not entering into marriage a, a new chapter to now plan and dream together. What kind of marriage do we want to have? Where do we want to live? Where do we want to raise a family? Do we want to get a nice house? Go on adventures? And so the world looks at these situations and says, bright future. Plan away. I want you to take a few seconds. Think about what kind of plans you have for your life. What kind of amazing plans and dreams you have for your future? Now, I hate to say, I think our church is getting to a place where we're old enough where that doesn't excite us anymore. Right? We're past the half 50 mark, so we're like, oh man, there's not too much brightness left ahead. But whatever youth we still have in us to think about that, think about the places you want to go, the things you want to do, the kind of money you want to make, and let it soak all in. It's a good feeling to look ahead, to gain a little bit of confidence and mojo thinking, oh man, this is what lies ahead in my future. The people James was addressing were people who had such confidence in their plans and things going according to their plan. Look at verse 13. He says, Come, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll travel to such and such city, spend a year there, do business and make profit. They have the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why all figured out. We're going to go there. This is what's going to happen. We're going to make money. And that is that. And the pride and the confidence is seen that they don't say, we hope this will happen. We may. This may happen. It says, this will happen. I am confident that this is the reality of what's going to happen. Well, let's go back to those three, three people in Newsflash. These are all legitimate uh, headlines from news articles, and I kind of made it a little more palatable. Six-year-old boy is hospitalized after being struck by an oxygen tank while getting an MRI. Three kids in critical condition when drunk driver hits the back of the minivan they were riding in. Newly engaged woman crosses the street, gets hit by a car, and passes. Just a quick Google search. Unexpected passings. You will be floored. This happens all the time. I share this not because I want to scare us, because I want to be morbid, or I want us to be only thinking about death. I share this because I want to show you real-life examples to prove James' point in verse 14. He says, you confident businessmen, and by extension, you confident people who are making all these plans, thinking this is what's going to happen in my life. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
you are like vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He's saying, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what life actually is, and you're living it totally wrong. Now, James doesn't even get into the spiritual factors. If you're not a Christian here today, you have to grapple with the first two reasons he gives that placing confidence in your plans is foolish. The first is, like I've been saying, it's foolish and it's problematic because life is uncertain. It's unpredictable. On a macro level, the whole world had to learn this lesson when what, COVID pandemic hit and a massive global wrench was thrown in the whole world's plans. But if you really just sober up and open your eyes, you'll realize how little of control you have over your life. Let me give one example. A lot of tech workers at our church, just look at the job market, right? A lot of people looking for jobs. It's a tough market right now. One market in particular that has totally pendulum shifted was the coding market, tech market for software engineers. Just a few years ago, it would not be a question for me to confidently say, hey, as long as you do coding boot camp, you don't even have to get a four-year education, do three months of intense hardcore boot camp, get yourself equipped for that, there's a job waiting for you. No one would have questioned my confidence because that's really what was the case. Now, a few years later, there is an absolute surplus of unemployed, qualified software engineers and not enough jobs. Where'd that confidence go? You really don't know what's going to happen. Or more seriously, consider health and how unexpected it is. Like, do you think you're going to be healthy forever? That you're exempt from freak accidents? I was just talking to a member recently, how just checking in, and he shared how his uncle took a routine trip back home. Freak medical accident passed, and the family is just shell-shocked right now. Nobody could have predicted that. And I, I'm willing to bet we're at an age now when you think about people and children you've grown up with, at least one of them unexpectedly probably is no longer here because that's the course of life. James makes a reasonable case to say it is foolish and arrogant to make plans so confidently when you literally have no idea what tomorrow has in store. And so he says, if your confidence in life lies in your plans coming to fruition, he says, you are in trouble, not if but when life will not go according to your plan, because you'll be crushed. What is the ground you now stand on? He not only says that problem number one is uncertain, but he says life, it's also problematic to do this because it is short. He gives such a good image and analogy. He says, do you want to know what the best image and analogy for what life is like, according to James? He says, on a cold, foggy morning, maybe not unlike today, he says, go outside. Look in the sky, take a deep breath, and breathe out. And he says, you see that mist? And the second you see it, it's gone? That's your life. That's what he says. That right there is a perfect description and image of your life. And here in the suburban OC bubble, we need to be confronted with that because James is confronting all of us who live in the comfort and illusion of predictability Right? If I can say one of the greatest curses of living in a context like ours is we think life is so predictable. We think things are going to go the way they're supposed to go. And he confronts you to really ask, well, what really is life? Is life really a steady, unchallenged path of growing up, getting an education, making money, getting married, buying a house, growing old, and dying in your sleep? He says, no, it is not. Life is a mist. Life is Short. You want to know this? 
No one, as they get older, says, oh man, my life, it went so slow. Everyone on their deathbed says, where did life go? How did it pass so quickly? Where did the time go? And because that's what life is, James echoes in Psalm 90.12 what Moses himself says, which is this, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. In other words, the brevity of life is a lesson to those who wish to become wise. And if I can summarize what it's saying, it is this. A foolish person plans out their life as if they will live forever. And on the flip side, a wise person plans out their day as if they will die tomorrow. That's what scripture is saying. Now, I'll touch on this more later, but hopefully it's clear why James sees worldly self-confident planning as problematic. Life's uncertain. It's unpredictable. It's short. It's a mist. But why not just say it's foolish? Why say it's evil? Why say it's a sin? Point number two, the sin of worldly planning. Now, before I explain why it's evil, let me give a helpful definition from Pastor Tim Keller of what worldly planning is in a nutshell. This is the definition he gives, and I like it. Worldliness and worldly living, it's living, planning, working, or operating without continual intellectual and emotional reference to God. In other words, it means going about your day and your life with little to no connection to who God is to you and what he has done for you. On an intellectual level and on an emotional level. Now, how many of you, when you read that definition, especially if you call yourself Christian, would raise your hand and confess, man, I'm guilty of this. I think if you're honest, all of us would. This probably describes your last week, maybe your last month, maybe your last year, maybe your last 10 years. And what James is saying is, well, first of all, that means you're living worldly. Now, what makes this sin so pervasive and widespread is because unlike other sins, the only thing you have to do to commit this sin is live your life. You don't have to lift a finger. Just go about your days, plan away. Forget God, ignore who he is, and like the rest of the world, go about living your life. It's so easy. It's the air we breathe. It's so pervasive. But did you know one of the most wicked sins that scripture talks about, especially in the Old Testament, is not the sin of fornication, sexual immorality, or blaspheming. It's forgetting God. Forgetting God. Let me flesh this out a bit. Why is forgetting God such a sin? Well, remember, it's a sin because God is not a principle. God is not a distant deity. He is a relational being who wants to be in relationship with you. And it is only in the context of relationship why you understand that forgetting him is so sinful. You know what one of the worst feelings is in relationship? It's the feeling of being forgotten or ignored, especially by someone you love. Uh, I'm not sure if you watched the Pixar movie Inside Out, but I'm going to reference it here and later too. It talks about this idea of core memories, right? So the movie's going inside the main character, Riley's heart, and there's different bubbles of memories she has, and it's color-coded based on the dominant emotion of the memory. And there's memories, and then there's what they call core memories, which are especially formative memories that kind of shape and mold who they are. Well, I have a core memory that is blue. Blue means sad. One of my blue core memories was uh, growing up, I had an older brother figure in the church. I loved him. I looked up to him. I actually shaped most of my life after him. He was literally my hero. 
I picked up the drums because he played the drums. I wanted to wear the clothes he wore. I wanted to get the interest he had because that's how formative an older brother mentor figure can be. So I remember one day we were talking, and again, I was like first grade, and he noticed I like playing video games, and he told me about this place that I can only say was basically like heaven, where there's video games everywhere and you can play all the time. Later, I came to find it's called Dave and Buster's, okay? But to me, it was called heaven. And he's like, there's this place called Dave and Buster's. I'll take you. It'll be great. And he said, here's the date and time. I want you to be ready. And I said, okay, first grader, right? You're not jaded yet. You're not disillusioned. You trust what people are going to say. So I kid you not, I couldn't sleep for a whole week. I told my parents about it. I told my friends about it. Bragged to my siblings about it. The day finally arrived, Saturday at 10 a.m. I, I wake up early, pick out my best clothes, did my hair with La Bella Gel. Those who know who know, right? I, I rarely use it, special occasions only. Packed up my little baby wallet with a few dollar bills and coins that I had saved up. And I sat on my couch starting at 9, because what if you came early? You never know. 9 a.m., sitting on my green leather hand-me-down couch. Hour passes, it's 10. Okay, he didn't come early, but he's going to come at 10 because that's when he said he's going to come. Hour passes, it's 11. I'm thinking, okay, maybe something happened. It's okay. I, I love this guy. I trust this guy. Maybe he'll, he'll explain later how like, he got a flat tire or something. Now it's 12, lunchtime. My mom's saying, do you want to eat lunch? And I'm like, no, maybe he wants to go eat together. Maybe he's going to buy me food. And so I'm thinking, no, it's okay. I'm not going to eat lunch. And I'm still excited. Skip lunch because I'm confident he's going to show up. At one, my parents are worried now because I'm literally just sitting there looking out the window. So my parents, again, mind you, there's no cell phones back then, okay? There's no texting. There's no ETAs. It's just landlines. So my parents get on a landline and call the guy, get, his, get in contact with him, and they leave him a voicemail basically through the line of like, hey, like my son's waiting like, for you. <laughs> are you going to come? Later, a, a little past like two, my parents hand me the phone, and it's, it's this guy. And he says, oh, man, Sam, your parents told me, like, you're waiting for me? He's like, oh, was that today? Dude, I totally forgot. I will never forget that feeling. It would have been far better for him to say something came up, or I couldn't make it, or, hey, I, I knew you were waiting, but then, like, I got in an accident. Anything could have been better than I forgot. And because I'm an Enneagram 9, I'm like, oh, no problem, it's okay. And I weep that night, like, oh, my gosh, I can't trust anybody anymore, right? The tears flowed that day, and they stopped flowing, right? When we forget something or someone, we have to be humble enough to admit it's rarely by accident. It is a revealer of what matters to you, of what is important to you. And the opposite is true. You will remember the things that matter. For example, one of the most eventful days for a lot of our sisters is their wedding day. Brothers and sisters alike, but sisters in particular, it's one of those days that you think about. And the apex moment of that day for everyone who attends is obviously when those doors open up and the bride in all her full array glory walks down the aisle. Now, could you imagine if you are at a wedding, the doors open, the bride's coming out and she goes, oh, shoot, I forgot to wear makeup. That has never happened out of the myriads of weddings I've been to, or, oh my goodness, where's my dress? Never happens. 10 out of 10 times, they're ready to go, not forgetting a thing, dressed in full glory. And God knows that about us. He knows that, hey, you're, you remember things that matter to you. And look what God says in Jeremiah 2. Can a young woman forget her jewelry 
or a bride her wedding sash? Yet my people have forgotten me for countless days. Why is it such a sin? God is saying to his people, you remember things that are important. But I'm not important to you. Because you ignore me, and you forget me in your day-to-day life. Or you remember me for two hours on a Sunday, or for 15 minutes in the morning, but otherwise it's as if I don't even exist. This is what theologians call Christians who profess belief in Christ but are practical atheists. You might as well not be Christian because that's how you live and act. When I first got married, I was legally married to my wife, Angela, but functionally I was a bachelor. Nothing in my life indicated that I was considering her in my decisions, considering her in my planning, and that was hurtful to her. It's like, are we married or not? How you keep making plans without considering me? And James is saying, if there's no difference between how you approach your life planning versus how your non-Christian coworker or friends does, something's wrong. I was having a conversation a few days with my, my dad who lives in Korea, and before I give this illustration, let me caveat, family dynamics are tricky. Okay, I'm not saying my experience should be normative for anyone. There's so many nuances, so this is not a universal situation, but I'm purely speaking from my experience and my relationship with my dad. So that being said, I'm at a life stage where I think many of us are entering, which is there's this gradual transition happening where I'm slowly starting to take care of him more than he takes care of me. And it's this weird transition that happens because, you know, he's your dad, and for the most part, you're the kid. But now there's kind of like a transition happening where I'm helping them think that they're retirement, helping them with their paperwork, their health is getting not as good. And towards the end of the conversation, again, routine conversation we had, my dad said something that really struck me. He said in Korean, uh, Sam, he said, thanks for considering me and your mom as you make your plans and live your life. He said, I know you're busy. I know you have two kids. I know it's hard, but thanks for, for thinking of us and for considering me. And that, that statement made me feel a certain way because my parents, they're the type of parents, they never asked for much growing up. They never demanded anything from us. They sacrificed everything for my well-being. That's not the case for everyone. It was for us, and we we're blessed as a result of that. So I told them after he said that, it almost kind of made me feel angry. Like, why would you feel the need to say that? So I told them, don't be ridiculous. Like, why are you thanking me? In our relationship, it is my joyful privilege to consider you, not just for all that you've done for me, but even if you hadn't, at least for me, you're my dad. That's what I told him. Like, you're my dad. And it, it, this is where I got why James is saying it's so wicked. Because I thought it would be wicked of me to throw you out of my life and not consider you, considering who you were for me. And after I hung up on my dad, because I talked to him late at night, that's when I get my sermon prepping done and stuff, I opened my Bible on my laptop to resume sermon prepping. And the spirit like slapped me in the face in like the godliest, nicest kind of way. So I was like, man, I feel so passionate about the idea of forgetting my dad. And yet as Jeremiah says, I have lived countless days forgetting my heavenly father who's given me everything. That's sinful. I need to repent. You know, one way to simplify what the Christian's aim in life ought to be is to glorify God. Do you know what glory means? When something is glorious, it means that it is weighty. You know what kind of things you remember in life? Weighty things. So you know what, therefore, day to day to glorify God means? It means to consider him weighty enough to remember in your day to day life. 
That's how you glorify God. And so then the flip side opposite of glorifying God is forgetting him. And we have failed to glorify God in that sense. So forgetting God is sinful in the relational sense, but James doesn't just say it's evil and wicked. He says there's another problem with it. It's boastful. Look at verse 16. He says, but as it is, it's not only wicked, you boast in your arrogance. Now, when I first read this text, it was hard to see the practical value of what James was saying. Like, I get the spiritual aspect where include God in your planning because that's the Christian and right thing to do. And so I thought, okay, sure, I can do that. I can tack on a Lord willing to my plans. But it was hard for me to really embrace this call because what actually changes by me considering God? Have you ever thought about that? Like, on the surface level, you can make a case. It doesn't really change your plans much. Like, I want to get the internship. I want to get the internship Lord willing. You either get it or you don't, whether or not Lord willing. I want to get that girl or a guy. I want to, you know, get that spouse. Lord willing or not, you get it or you don't. So the practical value is kind of hard. And I would make the case, it's true. In one sense, I don't necessarily think your plans themselves will change. But here's what will change. Your relationship to those plans will change. Here's what I mean. You see, to not, the, this is the case that James is making. To not consider God in your planning, it is equivalent to say that you yourself, therefore, you have control over your life. You're the one calling the shots. You know what's best for you. And whether you do it consciously or not, James is saying by not submitting to the Lord's will over your life, you are now boasting and placing confidence in your knowledge, your understanding, your wisdom. And he says that is prideful. You have fundamentally misunderstood how little you know as a human being. Now, again, he says that is boastful. Let me qualify here. Boasting is not necessarily a bad thing, even though it carries a negative connotation. Boasting simply means to put your confidence and rejoice in something. So I can boast in good things. I can boast in bad things. So the question is not are you boasting. It's what are you boasting in? What are you rejoicing in? What are you placing your confidence in? When you make plans without acknowledging God, James says, you are boasting and placing your confidence in yourself. And he says, that is extremely, extremely anxiety-inducing and burdensome. Have you ever thought or believed something like this in your head? I have to get this job. I have to find a spouse by this age. I have to have this much money. I have to be at this point in my life where else things are not going to go well. I have to start a family. Or if I don't, my life is over. Or maybe not to that extreme, but my life's not going to go the way it's supposed to go. Have you ever thought that before and believed that? Do you realize, infused in those thoughts and plans, who's sitting on the throne? Who's God? You are. You're sitting in the seat as the all-powerful, all-knowing being who's so confident that I know how things got to go. I know how things are going to go. And if it doesn't, you're crushed. Because if you live by boasting in yourself as possessing what God himself possesses, which is that you are now all-knowing and all-powerful, most likely you are the most anxious, worried person in the room. That's what James is saying. Because you are not qualified to sit in that seat. Again, what did he say earlier? How do you know? How do you know what's best for you? How do you know that it has to go that way? You're not God. And if you're in charge of your life, it's only a matter of time before you'll be devastated because life will not go as you plan. But he says, if you're humble enough to instead surrender that seat to God, 
Life will still be difficult, but you can better absorb situations where maybe you don't get that job, or your family doesn't end up this way, or you don't get that spouse in the ideal timeline. Why? Because, man, I don't know. I thought it would work out this way, but I, I don't know why it didn't. But God does. And I trust in him. So what does it look like then to plan in a way that includes God? What's the alternative? Point number three. Now, I've heard multiple sermons on this text, and I've heard very shallow applications that I am totally not saying you should do. Okay? I grew up in a kind of more like in-your-face fundamental type of setting. And so literally after this sermon, people were so convicted to the point where they would say, Lord willing, after everything, it was the most annoying thing in the world. What are you going to do today? I'm going to go home, Lord willing. What the heck? Why are you saying that? I don't know. What are you going to do this week? Oh, you know, I'm going to go to school, Lord willing. Like, dude, stop. Like, that's not what the point of this is. Now, if that helps you, all power to you. Just know you're going to really piss off people and your non-Christian friends are going to think you're really kooky, okay? That's not what, religious, religious jumbo is not the point of this text. It's much deeper than that, actually. James is obviously trying to get at something much deeper than just your external talk. And the key lies in verse 15. I never saw this before, but it totally makes sense. He says, the alternative is instead you should say, if the Lord wills, he doesn't say if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Look at the qualifier. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Notice he doesn't just say we should tie God to our plans and do this or that. He says we should tie God to life itself. You guys catch that? In other words, James is not prescribing an alternative approach to planning. He's describing an alternative approach to life. That's the fundamental difference between religion and Christianity. And this is crucial to understand if you're ever to understand the heart of what it truly means to be Christian, that Christ is not an adjustment to your way of living. Christ is a radical new life. And through verse 15, we see a fundamental belief that shows that you really get this is this foundational conviction that the only reason you woke up this morning and that you are alive and breathing is because of the grace of God. God's grace. Because you know when a Christian really gets it? It's when you have this radical moment where the gospel penetrates into your heart, Christ enters into your life, the Spirit convicts you of your sin, and there is this unshakable moment where you now confess that, God, what I deserve on a moment-by-moment basis is condemnation. It's judgment. That's what I deserve. And every moment I receive anything other than that is grace. When you forget that, your life will be out of whack as a Christian. I love how one pastor puts it. He says, another way to translate this idea of God willing is to say, God lending me life. So he would translate this phrase and say, instead of saying God willing, say, if God lends me life, then I will do this and that. If God gives me breath to breathe, then I will live this way. You see, it radically changes your approach to how you plan out your days because it is infused by the undeserved grace of God. The Puritans, I love them. They're a little hard-hitting and old school for me to reference regularly. But John Edwards, he famously said, every day I wake up and I'm not in hell, it's a good day. (laughs) A little hardcore, right? I won't won't quote him too often, but that kind of stuff, it works for me. What this does is it serves as an antidote to pride 
and worry. Here's why. Because when things are going well in your life, you don't get puffed up thinking and get, you don't take the credit. You got that job? Grace of God. Yeah, I planned for it, and I'm really glad it worked out, but it may not have worked out, so thank you, Lord. You don't take credit because it's God's grace. It humbles the proud, and when things are not going well, things don't pan out the way, you will not be crushed, and you could take comfort. Why? Because God's in charge. It's grace. It's grace anyways. Everything is the grace of God in your highs of life, in your lows of life. And that's what I think leads to this interesting connection in verse 17, how it concludes. Right? The seemingly random conclusion, he says, so therefore it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Now, this verse seems a little random. I think there's a couple different ways you can take it and interpret it. But one main thing, please track with me here, that I think he's communicating is this. When you get it and you live by grace, one thing that happens, it allows you to worry less about your life and your plans and to worry more about obeying God and his plans. Okay? There's a transaction that happens when you get this way of thinking. Now, let me try to flesh this out because I think it's really, really important. A lot of us are worriers. Right? Anxiety is at an all-time high right now when it comes to mental health. Worry at its root, if I can give you an analogy of what it is. Imagine you have mental real estate in your head. Worry takes it all up. It takes up your mental real estate. That's why another way to describe someone who is worried is that they are preoccupied. You ever try to have a conversation with someone who's worried? It's not going to be a conversation because they're not there. You ever try to see a parent who's trying to love their kids while they're worried? They're not really parenting, because they're not there. You ever try to hear someone listen to a sermon while they're worried? I know. I see you. (laughs) I know you ain't here. Worry takes up mental real estate, and that real estate is precious because that is the foundation for which you will now live your life. Make sense? And I want to give the benefit of the doubt that most of us who call ourselves Christian, I actually think we do have a general desire to want to obey God and hear his voice. I really think so. I've talked to many of us here. I don't think anyone's blatantly like, I don't want to listen to God. So the issue, though, is I think this. It's not that we don't have the desire. It's that we don't have the functional mental real estate to act on that desire. You know why? Because we are too preoccupied with the worries and cares of this life, as Matthew says. You got no mental real estate to live for God because you're so worried. Why do you think the Bible constantly says, stop worrying? Stop worrying about tomorrow. Do not be anxious. Instead, what? Seek the kingdom first. Sufficient for the trouble is tomorrow or today. Seek God's kingdom first. So to put it all together, I think what James is getting is this. The worries of tomorrow are preventing you from doing the good that God has called you to do today. You're never called to obey tomorrow. You're not called to live next week. You are called to parent, to love, to be in community, to do the one another's today. And we're so preoccupied with what's to come that we're not really here at what is now. Now, why should this convict us? I think many of us don't have explicit big sins we struggle with. Maybe it's not even for the right reason. Maybe we're just moral people. We grew up in the church or we're just really good, you know, moral people. But I'm sure many of us, when we confess our sins, if you're like me, it's kind of hard to think of things, right? You're like, well, I didn't murder anyone. I didn't commit crazy sexual morality. And I think I'm, I'm pretty okay. So it's hard to think about what am I actually confessing this time? I don't think I committed anything really bad this past week. And that's where you have to see what James is getting at because he, he introduces a whole other world and category of sin here. He says, works, righteous, oriented people, which a lot of Asian Americans are, you think the only type of sins that you commit are the things that you do. 
And he said, let me introduce you to a whole other world of sin. It's the things you don't do. Isn't that what he says? He says, you tend to think of sin as the breaking of a command or disobeying of the law. And, J- and James says, that, 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 is, that is bad. It's the sin of commission. But there's something called what theologians call the sin of omission, which is not just not doing or not just doing wrong things, but it's not doing the right thing. And it looks different for everyone. I don't think the CSB captures it best. NASB does it better. I think it really captures a nuance that's important. He says, so for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. That's actually what the original language actually says. In other words, right here today, in this moment, if you call yourself Christian, I can say with biblical authority, the Spirit is calling you to do something. I really believe that. Some of you guys, it could be repenting of your sins. Some of you guys, it could be growing in love for your neighbor. Some of you guys could be seeking to reconcile that relationship. Some of the parents, it could be stop putting away discipling your children. Start now. Others, it could be getting baptized. The Spirit's tugging on you and being like, hey, you, you haven't publicly professed. Why aren't you getting baptized? It's different for everyone. And the point is this. There's no universal standard, but for you, the Spirit speaks to you. And when you feel that tug and you ignore it, he says, for you, it is sin. Maybe not for them, but for you. There are present duties that need to be attended to for every single one of us here. Love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. Again, I love their language. He says, if we would just quiet our hearts enough, and I quote, to hear the clock of the Holy Spirit, he says, every tick of the Spirit would be now, 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 now. God never says, you know, I got something for you to do later. Doesn't happen. Now, what is more important to realize, though, is even in this, we become self-centered because we think, well, it's about me bettering my life, doing things I should do for God. But do you realize that's not God's fundamental purpose for you as a human? It's for you to be a blessing to others, amen? That's the call. And here's the thing. By refusing to obey what God has called you to do now, what we might be missing out more on than our own feeling of obedience to the Lord is an opportunity to bless others. Here's this quote I love. God wants to use each of us to be a blessing to others. And we'll never know this side of heaven how our obedience can benefit someone else. It is easier for us to see the harm done by blatant sins like gossip, stealing, or murder. It is less obvious, which is knowing what could have been, if only we had responded to God's prompting to get involved where he is at work. When we refuse to obey God, we rob someone else, as well as ourselves, of God's blessing. Maybe what God's call for you, it's not for you, it's for that person he's saying, can you seek to love that person and you're so mentally preoccupied with the worries of this life, which God has already told you, don't worry about those things. And now you've robbed that person of a blessing that God wants to use you as a conduit of. And it makes me think, we rob each other, church. This is a place where God wants to use us to bless each other. And we rob each other all the time. And it grieves God. And if there's anyone here who God has placed something in your mind to call to obedience, to do something good, translate into action today. That's the call at least. Now to close, I know this can be discouraging, right? If you're like me, it's, maybe you feel a little guilty. Maybe you feel like, man, I have really not been living this way. How could God ever accept me? And so let me provide us some gospel comfort because we could always use that. So I shared earlier about the whole inside-out analogy, okay? And how one of my blue low moments and core memories in life was that being forgotten. 
All of us in this room, whether before and maybe even right now, you have blue moments. Maybe you're in one right now. Lord knows. I don't know. Lord knows. And as I shared, one of the common thread in these low blue moments, especially the core memory ones, I would argue it's that feeling of being alone and forgotten. Is it not? It's feeling forgotten, whether by people, whether by loved ones, or maybe even by God. The struggle is, we don't feel like we have the right, though, to approach God in those moments because we forget him, right? So we feel guilty, we feel sinful, we forgot him. How could I ever approach him? Now, can I remind us of the hope and the promise and the beauty of the gospel? On the cross, Jesus Christ was forsaken, or in other words, he was forgotten by God. Father, why have you forsaken me? The one who should never have been forgotten, never have been forsaken, represented you. And because he was forsaken, the promise we all have for all eternity is this. Even though life will be hard and there will be difficult moments, one thing that will never happen for those who are in Christ is you'll be alone. It's an impossibility in Christ. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You'll never be forgotten. That's why I love the movie. The part of the movie, I think this was like the aha moment for a lot of people who watched the movie, right? The main character, Riley, when she feels alone and forgotten after a hockey game, it's this blue thing. And then there's this subtle moment that happens where the blue, it kind of starts to turn yellow. And the viewer's like, what the, like, what is this sorcery, right? I thought emotions are just, just one color. And you kind of have this bluish yellow bulb now where in the sorrow, there's now joy. And it kind of shows you what happens, which is it doesn't take away from the sorrow of the event. She still felt lonely and forgotten, but it shows her dad come next to her, put his arm around her and comfort her, and it slowly starts to turn a little bit yellow. And forever in that moment, though she was at a low, it will never be as low as she thought it was because her dad was there. For the Christian, there is never a moment in your life where your bubble will just be blue. Because the only time it was that was on the cross. That's why we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the hope of Christ. No part of our life has to be the lowest of lows because Christ took that on and he infused every moment of our life with grace. So it's out of that that we can serve freely. We're not doomed to our plans not working out, but Christ is better. Let's pray together.